So Hare Krishna, dear devotees, please accept our humble obeisances. All glories to Jagat Guru Shri Prabhupada, all glories to Guru Dev, all glories to His Holiness, Krishna Kshetra Swami Maharaj, and all glories to assembled Vaishnava devotees, Vaishnava Vaishnavi devotees. Devotees, we are very much blessed and honored to have the presence of His Holiness Krishna Kshetra Swami Maharaj, who will be speaking to us from the Srimad Bhagavatam, the Nectarian Srimad Bhagavatam today. So, uh, of course, Maharaj is not new here. He's been so generous, so kind uh, to be with us. Uh, oftentimes, uh, he may have a very, very tight schedule, but he still tries to make it here. And Maharaj, we can't thank you enough for that. So, without further ado, uh, we may put the verse on the screen, and Maharaj will take it over from you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you, Prabhu. Nice Hare. to be with you again. Hare Krishna. <laughs> oh, there it is. Okay. <clears throat> so. <clears throat> Um, okay, shall we read the Sanskrit? Yes, Mara. Okay. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Devadvishang Nigamavartmani Nishtitanam. Purbir mayena vihitabira drishaturbi Lokang natang mativi mohamati pralobang Beshang vidhaya bahubashata opadharmyam And yeah, let's go straight to the, uh, to the translation since we're starting a bit late. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Shiva Prabhupada. Translation, when, when the atheists, after being well-versed in the Vedic scientific knowledge, annihilate inhabitants of different planets, flying unseen in the sky, on well-built rockets prepared by the great scientist Maya, the Lord will bewilder their minds by dressing himself attractively as Buddha and will preach on sub-religious principles. And Prabhupada's purport, this incarnation of Lord Buddha is not the same Buddha incarnation we have in the present history of mankind. According to Shiva Jiva Goswami, the Buddha incarnation mentioned in this verse appeared in a different Kali age, in the duration of life of one Manu. There are more than 72 Kali Yugas, and in one of them, the particular type of Buddha mentioned here would appear. Lord Buddha incarnates at a time 
when the people are most materialistic and preaches common sense religious principles. Such ahimsa is not a religious principle itself, but is an important quality for persons who are actually religious. It is a common sense religion because one is advised to do no harm to any other animal or living being because such harmful actions are equally harmful uh, to he who does the harm. But before learning these principles of nonviolence, one has to learn two other principles, namely to be humble and to be prideless. Unless one is humble uh, and prideless, one cannot be harmless and nonviolent. And after being nonviolent, one has to learn tolerance and simplicity of living. One must offer respects to the great religious preachers and spiritual leaders and also train the senses for controlled action, learning to be unattached to family and home and enacting devotional service to the Lord, etc., at the ultimate stage, one has to accept the Lord and become his devotee. Otherwise, there is no in religious principles. There must be God in the center. Otherwise, simple moral instructions are merely sub-religious principles, generally known as upadharma or nearness to religious principles. So, um, this chapter seven of uh, giving brief uh, descriptions of the avatars, and one might wonder why are we getting this again after we got it already brief listing. Uh, in chapter 3 of Canto 1. Um, well, there's a general sense we get in the Bhagavatam that mm, repetition is not a bad thing. <laughs> and it's not just repetition, it's also expansion. Uh, Canto 1, Chapter 3, as I remember, all of the verses are in uh, the short Anushtu form of eight syllables per line. Whereas here in Chapter 7, Canto 2, uh, I believe they're all 14-syllable lines, uh, which makes the, makes the verses a Sharada Tilaka, um, meter. So the verses are longer, and that means uh, they include more description. And unlike in the first canto, chapter three, where um, each avatar is given very sh uh, just one verse of description, in this chapter, sometimes there's more than one verse. Sometimes it's two verses, 
to describe one one avatar. And when it comes to Lord Krishna, at the end of this chapter, there are 10 verses, if I remember correctly, 10 verses that are um, summarizing Krishna's pastimes when he appears in the world. So, um, yeah. So in the context of the description of avatars, we get this, this, this mention of Buddha, who um, is not mentioned by any name in, in the verse itself, but which we understand refers to Buddha. Why? Because uh, Jiva Goswami tells us that. And also, I would suggest because it um, briefly, ever so briefly, echoes a quite detailed description in the Vishnu Purana, where Lord Vishnu uh, agrees to the request of the demigods to help them when the Daityas have overwhelmed them. Um, Vishnu agrees to help. And how is he going to help? <clears throat> By appearing as what's called the Maya Mohan. He's also not referred to as Buddha because in the Vishnu Purana description, there are three different groups that uh, Lord Vishnu intentionally bewilders. Uh, the Buddhists, the Jains, and other materialists. Uh, so it seems to me that what we're getting here in this verse is um, kind of echoing uh, that description. In the third line, it says, Lokan Knatang Mativimoham Atipralovam. Mativimohan, bewildering the mind. And atipralobham, very attractive. Uh, he, he looks very attractive. And his Vesham is mentioned. That's also somewhat echoing the Vishnu Purana uh, version, which mentions, as I remember, uh, that he... He dresses in a um, in a disguise uh, with red cloth <laughs> uh, when he's approaching some of the daityas. He preaches what's essentially a kind of mm, well, it's strictly speaking not Buddhism, but it's a kind of. Um, a kind of spoof on Buddhism, and same with Jainism and then other materialists. I did a study of that section of the Vishnu Purana several years ago, and I wrote um, an essay on the on that, uh, analyzing analyzing it in quite some detail. Uh, because it's um, it has some interesting features, 
and uh, I presented it at a a conference, uh, Indology conference, uh, which is held every three years in Croatia, and uh, it was as as they say it was well received. <laughs> um, yeah. What Prabhupada is saying in the purport, of course, is what we might want to say is uh, of most import for us in his explanation of how ahimsa specifically is the sub-religious principle referred to. In the Sanskrit of the verse, it says, bahubhashate uh, opadharm. Opadharmyam. Bahu bhashyate. Uh, he will say, or he, he will speak in so many ways, um, which you could say is, is a way of saying he will be speaking uh, nonsense, <laughs> which of course is very ironic. Here we have the Supreme Personality of Godhead himself, um, and we generally understand if the Supreme Personality of Godhead speaks, uh, he's speaking the absolute truth. And so there's no, um, he's not speaking ironically, he's speaking uh, the truth as it is. But here he, here he is taking on the position, uh, the form of Buddha, and he's intentionally bewildering uh, these uh, persons who are described as devadvisha, as envious of the devotees. Uh, so again, in the purport, uh, Prabhupada is identifying ahimsa as this upadharma. And as I remember, he speaks about this elsewhere as well. It would take me some time to see where that was. But uh, he, he makes the point that a devotee will naturally uh, be nonviolent. Uh, so the religious principle, of course, is Supreme Lord and recognize means to uh, take shelter uh, of the Lord. Mata paratanam nanya kinchidasti dananjaya mai sarvnidam protam sutre manigana iva recognizing that everything is depending on the Lord like so many pearls on a string. Um, or aham sarvasya prabhavo Matta sarvam pravartate. Everything is coming, mataha, from me, Krishna says. <clears throat> and then, iti matva bhavan, what is it? Iti matva vajante mam buddhava samanvita. When one recognizes, acknowledges that <clears throat> there is a Supreme Lord from whom everything is coming then what is the natural thing to do? The natural thing is to then worship him. Buddha bhava samanvita 
uh, with uh, great uh, resolve, great determination. Uh, and so in this purport, Prabhupada says, it is a common sense religion because one is advised to do no harm to any other animal or living being. Uh, he's referring here to Buddhism um, as being a common sense religion, <laughs> which is an interesting way of putting it. It's common sense. In other words, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence. And also, another way to understand that is uh, it's not necessary to have a Vedic injunction of ahimsa because it's common sense. Everyone can understand. Um, of course, many times Srila Prabhupada, when speaking about Buddha, Lord Buddha, would make Uh, Hare Krishna, dear devotees. Uh, since Marek is having uh, connection difficulties, so we'll wait for a, a minute or so. And then uh, Marek. I'm back. Yes, thank you, Marek. Sorry. I... Okay. So I don't know how long I was cut off, but. Um... About 30 seconds, <laughs> not long. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, Prabhupada explains that the Buddha's method of getting uh, the Brahmins to stop Vedic sacrifice was to himself reject Veda altogether um, because they would argue that we're just doing what it says in the Veda in Vedic ritual um, texts. So uh, Buddha Dev would say, well, forget about the Vedas. <laughs> uh, forget about the Veda and just listen to, actually the emphasis in Buddhism from the bit of reading I've done of Buddhism, the, the emphasis is very much on experience and reason, uh, that uh, there is no acknowledgement of higher authority. There is simply one's own uh, reasoning and one's own experience. Well, that's the theory. The only trouble is that there's a quite vast literature uh, of uh, Buddhist texts, which are attributed to Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, that um, are, are taken as authoritative. So even though there's a notion that everything is, uh, the how to say, the final um, decision is for oneself, by one's own experience and one's own reasoning. 
still they uh, have uh, a massive literature, uh, the entire Pali canon uh, for the Theravada tradition. And then there's, I don't know how many different texts they have in the Mahayana tradition, which uh, comes somewhat later and goes to China and so on. Um, so anyway, Prabhupada is making this point mainly as his key point with relation to the Buddha as an avatar, that he is, in a sense, making an upaya, a, a technique uh, for stopping people from committing violence uh, to animals as they as they were doing and of course as they are doing um, much more now than ever before we cannot even begin to imagine there are websites uh, which give tech uh, give uh, uh, data about uh, numbers of animals killed Faunalytics is one website you can find. And um, it's very disturbing information of what's given there. Uh, approximately 34,000 cows per hour globally are slaughtered. Uh, that's a statistic from, I think, a few years ago. So it's probably more now. Um, perhaps it would be interesting now since ahimsa is found uh, as a principle in the yoga sutras of Patanjali and much of what's in the yoga sutras is also can also be found in the Bhagavatam um, uh, Patanjali seems to have been himself a theist and um, one devotee scholar has uh, argued, has given reasons why it would be uh, reasonable that he was a Vaishnava, but he might have been a Shaiva. But because he encourages what he calls Ishvara Pranidhan, which can be translated as uh, simply worship of the Lord, he doesn't specify which Lord because he wants his uh, yoga sutras to be um, sort of non-sectarian. He wants them to be as widely accepted as possible. Um, but he uh, famously speaks or writes about Ashtanga yoga, the eightfold yoga system, the first uh, session, uh, the first limb of which is yama uh, or restraint and uh, restraint yama consists of five principles, the first of which is ahimsa. And it's explained by the commentators on the Yoga Sutras, um, at least by a couple of the commentators as I remember that. Um, ahimsa is the foundation for the practice of yoga. It's a foundation for 
um, all the other four aspects of yama and the five aspects of niyama or practices in particular. Uh, and so one could take, as, as I said, uh, ahimsa can be seen as a foundation for yoga, but it can also be seen as the result of yoga. Srila uh, Prabhupada emphasizing, we could say with respect to bhakti yoga, the latter. It's a natural uh, function uh, from the practice of bhakti yoga. That having said that, um, you may find it interesting, a couple of sutras in the yoga sutras I found uh, very intriguing. After um, Patanjali explains about the yamas and niyamas very briefly, then he, he goes into... Um, it gives a very interesting hint about how to be successful in practicing uh, ahimsa and so on. And uh, this is how he does it. I'll, I'll just refer to two of his sutras. The first is a short one. Uh, it goes, Vitarka varane pratipaksha bhavanam, which means upon being harassed by negative thoughts, one should cultivate counteracting thoughts, <laughs> which is a very nice principle in general. Um, whenever we find some unappropriate thought coming to our mind, uh, Patanjali is suggesting, first you recognize that that's what it is, and then step two, you consciously bring a counteracting thought, a pratipaksha um, bhavanam. And then in the next um, sutra, which is somewhat longer, he gives some further detail of how to do that. And it goes like this, and I will read. It says, Vitarka himsadaya pritakaritanu modita loba krota moha purvata Mridu madhyadi matra dukha jnana anantapala itti pratipaksha bhavanam. He's, um, he's unpacking what is this process of pratipaksha bhavanam. And he's giving an example of a bad thought, uh, a negative or a perverse thought. Specifically, what is that? Himsa. So one may have some thought of violence. So the translation of the sutra goes like this. Negative thoughts are violence, etc. They may be personally performed, performed on one's behalf by another, or authorized by oneself, they may be triggered by greed, anger, or delusion, and they may be slight, moderate, or extreme in intensity. One should cultivate counteracting thoughts, namely, that the end results of negative thoughts are 
ongoing suffering and ignorance. So in other words, every time we think of something that's, you know, um, uh, that's unfavorable, that's pratikula, uh, that's against unfavorable to devotional service, then what uh, Patanjali is suggesting is immediately one should think of how much trouble that thinking is going to cause us. Uh, and then we can counteract with a positive thought. So, okay, that's a bit of practical application, we might say, from the from the yoga, the yoga darshan. The yoga darshan is, in terms of its ultimate aim, not accepted by the Vaishnavas because um, uh, the yoga, at least as represented it <laughs> in the yoga sutras, uh, the ultimate aim is kaivalya, and kaivalya is generally translated as isolation. So the, it's, you could say, radically different from what devotees want. <laughs> we don't want isolation. We want to be uh, in the association of devotees. We want to be with Krishna, with all of his associates, and so on. However, the word uh, kaivalya can be otherwise understood and uh, it's mentioned, as I remember, in the 11th canto. Um, don't ask me exactly where, I don't remember now. 11th canto, it's mentioned, and there it's um, understood in a devotional way as, yeah, pure devotion, basically. Uh, Kaivalya comes from the word kevala, which means only, so something like exclusive uh, devotion. But anyway, um, so the I think it's, yes, it's uh, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur who explains that Gaudiya Vaishnavas do not accept uh, the um, yoga, classic, classical yoga darshan soteriology, that is, what is their ultimate aim? We don't accept. However, uh, there is still much that we can accept, we can appreciate uh, in terms of the process of yoga, as described in, for example, Yoga Sutras, because, as I mentioned, all of practically all of what you'll find there, you'll also find in the Bhagavatam. Uh, you'll find... Uh, mentioned, of course, very briefly, but also in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 6, uh, alludes to the several of the practices of Ashtanga Yoga and so on. Right, so that's um, a bit on yoga and ahimsa and buddha, um, maybe I should pause now and see if there are any questions. And otherwise, um, I have something I could share with you, uh, something I wrote, which you may find interesting. But let's 
first pause and see if you have any comments or questions. Hare Krishna, thank you so much, Maharaj. Uh, I just want to find out from the devotees, should Maharaj continue to share what Maharaj was talking about with us or anybody who has a question you would want to ask? Uh, please continue, Maharaj, please, if that's okay with everyone. <laughs> yes, that is okay with me too. Okay. Yes, Maharaj, please, yes. There are no objections. Well, I just, uh, a couple of hours ago, I dusted off, so to say, something I wrote um, with regard to um, teachings of Bhagavad Gita in relation to Buddhism. And I did this uh, with a specific aim which was um, to eventually publish something in China, which has been published. Um, I can tell more about that if you like later, but um, yeah, we published a book called Advancing Across the Great River. And it's, um, it's some introductory writing about uh, the Bhagavad Gita. We, we were able to get it translated into Mandarin language, and it's a dual language book, uh, which was uh, um, eagerly published. That's not an easy thing to do for such a book in China. It was legally published by an academic press. So I wrote one article. Uh, or essay or chapter for this book. Uh, let's see, what did I give us the title? Here it is. Yeah, Bodhi Bodhi Dharma's four entrances and the Bhagavad Gita: an exploration of Chan Buddhism through Vaishnava Hinduism. <laughs> okay, so Bodhi Dharma is an interesting. Uh, person personality. Uh, history has it that he was a Brahmin in South India, living in the fifth century of the Common Era, and uh, in around four seventy five Common Era, he left India and. Uh, went by boat, to, by ship, to southern China. And there he founded, essentially, a new form of Buddhism, a meditational form of, of Buddhism ch called Chan. We've all heard the word Zen, Zen Buddhism uh, from Japan. So the word Chan became Zen in Japanese, and the word Chan uh, is generally understood to be uh, derived from the Sanskrit word Dhyana, D-H-Y, long A, and A, Dhyana. So he's a kind of founder acharya uh, of this Chan Buddhism, 
which became popular. Buddhism was already popular in China. Um, it had been supported by, um, by emperors in China, and there were already um, so many temples and so many priests and so on. But there was a feeling that it had become uh, too much institutionalized. And so when Bodhidharma came and uh, began preaching this, his Chan Buddhism, that became very popular as a kind of protest against uh, this sort of orthodox, what had become a kind of orthodox Buddhism in China. Um, and there's an interesting legend about uh, Bodhidharma that after he died in China, um, three years later, he was seen walking in Western China toward India. <laughs> and uh, the story goes that uh, he had a walking stick and on the end of his walking stick, you know, over his shoulder uh, was one shoe. And the idea is that uh, he had one, one of his shoes that he had been buried with and then they, apparently they, uh, what's the word, they ex exhumed his body back where he had been buried in south, sort of southeastern China, and they found there was only one shoe. <laughs> in any case, the story is he, somehow he went back to India. Uh, so what I did in this article is I took uh, this, what is apparently a famous writing of his, um, it's four very short practices that he describes. And then I give a sort of Vaishnav commentary on each of these mm. uh, four practices. So um, shall I read one of these? Yes, Maharaj, please. <laughs> okay, so here comes, first of all, Bodhidharma's first practice. Uh, it's called requiting injury or suffering injustice. So Bodhidharma says, what is the practice of requiting injury? If the practitioner who is cultivating the path encounters suffering, he thinks to himself, quote, I, from the past, across innumerable eons, have become estranged from the root and followed after the branches, having flowed along in various existences, producing a great deal of ill will and hatred, antagonizing and harming others endlessly. Though there is no transgression on my part in the present, this suffering is the ripening of bad karma fruits 
of the faults of my past lives. It is something that neither the gods nor men have put upon me. With satisfaction, I will bear and accept it with absolutely no ill will or complaining. The sutra, some unidentified sutra, says, quote, when you meet suffering, do not be sad. Why? Because you comprehend the underlying reason behind it, unquote. When this thought arises, one is yoked with principle, taking ill will as an opportunity one advances on the path, and therefore it is called the practice of requiting in injury. Okay, so that's what Bodhidharma says. And to that, I say Bodhidharma refers to the ripening of bad karma fruits as the source of our experiences of suffering. The notion of karma, literally action, as the basic mechanism of a moral universe within which all beings live, thrive, and suffer has been widely accepted since early times in South Asia. What Bodhidharma offers here is an example of how one who practices meditation can best think about his or her experiences of trouble. Although we cannot remember specific events in our past, especially from past lives, the suggestion is that we do well to assume ourselves to be responsible for what we now receive. Having produced, quote, a great deal of ill will and hatred, antagonizing and harming others endlessly, unquote, it is no wonder that we suffer today nor is there any reason to blame others for our present suffering. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's very first practical instruction to his student Arjuna is to practice tolerance of experiences characterized by duality, in particular heat and cold or happiness and distress, knowing them to be transitory. This ideal of mental equanimity echoes throughout the Gita, and in chapter six, um, which is specifically about meditation, Krishna brings the point to a deeper level when he says, quote, well-wisher, friend, enemy, stranger, neutral, inimical, relative, saint, and even sinner, in relation to all these, equal regard is prized. Significantly, it is immediately after this statement that Krishna begins to outline favorable details for practice of meditation, such as the importance of being situated alone, being free from desire, and making no claims of ownership. So much as Bodhidharma calls upon the meditator to first settle all issues or problems with other living beings, Krishna declares the need for a potential meditator to go beyond differences among living beings and beyond seeing others only in relation to one's own interests. Bodhidharma speaks of being yoked with principle, suggesting a relation to the Sanskrit word yoga. Yoga has a wide range of meanings, generally having to do with practice or discipline that brings about a condition of being yoked 
an English cognate of yukta, which is a grammatical variant of yoga, to a higher truth or reality. The Bhagavad Gita is filled with references to yoga as disciplined spiritual practice, including a wide range of such practices, and with references to those who practice yoga, namely yogis. Again, as with the notion of karma, we have uh, in this concept and word yoga an idea in wide circulation in South Asia. Further to note, and this is the last paragraph, Further to note is Bodhidharma's admonition, taking ill will as an opportunity. Here we find a hint of what Vaishnava Hindu tradition will develop extensively on the basis of what we may call yogic reciprocity. We may find also a hint of this idea in the Gita's chapter 6, where the practitioner's mind is characterized as being his or her friend if it is subdued or conquered. When the mind serves one in the practice of meditation, one will recognize opportunities to, quote, advance on the path, unquote, in a situation of adversity, whereas one not accomplished in meditation will see only distraction. Moreover, even though the advanced meditator will not regard others as friends or enemies, he or she will be vigilant to bring about strong friendship with the mind. Also, we should note that although Arjuna is urged to rise above seeing friends and enemies, he is also ordered by Krishna to fight with fortitude in the ensuing battle with his cousins and thus to fight for the good, for justice. And then I go on to Bodhidharma's uh, second um, practice. So my aim in, in that whole essay is not to sort of bash Buddhism, um, but rather to uh, make a sort of friendly approach. Um, Buddhism, as I said, is very much established since... since uh, well over close to 2,000 years in uh, China. So uh, better to make friends with him than to make enemies. <laughs> okay, that's, um, I think that's pretty much what I would have to say. Going back maybe to the, to the verse once more briefly, um, the translation. When the atheists, after being well-versed in the Vedic scientific knowledge, annihilate inhabitants of different planets, flying unseen in the sky on well-built rockets prepared uh, by the great scientist Maya. Um, oops, I just have to move something. <laughs> Okay, the Lord will bewilder their minds by dressing himself attractively as Buddha and will preach on sub-religious principles. So it's interesting, the translation indicates uh, that this is future tense. Um, and uh, the idea, of course, being that uh, this is an ongoing program. The Lord appears and he appears again in cycles. So Jiva Goswami can say, 
No, this is referring to a previous uh, a previous incarnation of Buddha. Um, but in the verse, it says, in the future, he will appear. Well, um, it can go both ways, so to say, past and future. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, thank you, Maharaj. Uh, Maharaj, do you per chance have uh, some of these articles on your website? Oh, hmm. Good question. I think I've been I've been rather delinquent in making such things available. Uh, but good that you remind me. I should I should upload that. You know, some of us would like to read it. Uh, mm. It's it's nice hearing you read it, but uh, I think it would be easier to be absorbed much. Yeah, I know. Yeah, if we read it ourselves. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Maharaj. Uh, so, mm -hmm. this, uh, does anyone have a question, comment? Uh, we wouldn't want to hold Maharaj a little uh, much longer, but if someone has a question, comment, please. You're free to do that. Mm -hmm. Looks like we have a quiet group today. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Mitra, please. Uh, please take me to normal obeisances. All glories to Srila Prabhupada Maharaj. Thank you so much for being here. Um, the information you gave was, um, you know, very insightful. And um, for some reason, seeing, uh, you know, our process of bhakti yoga and you know, when and how it's taught uh, in some ways uh, appeared to certain people to be different than what you read. But there's a lot of correlation, of course, because it's about connecting mm -hmm. the soul. Um, when we discuss ahimsa, um, there are in some communications I've had with people uh, uh, an understanding that even though it's violent, if it's done for the reason right reason or for a reason that is perceived right, then it's okay. Would you please speak on that? Oh, <laughs> oh, that, that can be a big subject. Well, um, we could agree with that, uh, especially in the context of the Gita. We understand, of course, that um, Arjuna was being... Uh, charged uh, by Lord Krishna to fight and um, you know fighting is pretty violent <laughs> in a war uh, and this is where Prabhupada was always quite strongly uh, rejecting Mahatma Gandhi's idea of allegorizing the, the, the Gita uh, uh, to the extent of saying that the main message of the Gita is ahimsa. Um, it, it takes a bit of a a bit of a stretch to make that conclusion. <laughs> uh, 
But of course, Prabhupada would uh, say that uh, Arjuna was thoroughly justified in his uh, fighting in the battle. Uh, the, the whole Mahabharata, in effect, is, or much of the Mahabharata is giving the justification for the Pandavas to fight. Um, and then it becomes a question, what constitutes justification? Uh, it also becomes a question, what constitutes himsa and what constitutes ahimsa? Um, and um, according to one source I read, technically speaking, uh, the prefix, the short A prefix, ah, an ahimsa, does not necessarily mean an absolute canceling. Uh, of himsa, that technically in the Sanskrit language, uh, the negative particle can have a whole um, spectrum of meanings, um, not something we usually hear about. Another uh, possibly relevant point, it's, it's been noticed uh, by uh, some scholars that there's another, another principle in the Mahabharata um, which is uh, strongly praised, and that is anrishansa. What is anrishansa? It means non-cruelty. And so um, it can be argued, you know, there's a, there's a difference between um, non-violence and non-cruelty. Uh, some violence may be required in certain circumstances, depending how you interpret the word violence. Uh, and um, cruelty, it's generally, in some contexts, cruelty, non-cruelty can be more easily distinguished. Um, but back to himsa and ahimsa, I think it may be interesting. And back to um, Gandhi. Mm. I wrote a paper about this also one time, uh, about Gandhi's um, animal theology. Um, that uh, one time there was a... I think it was a young calf on Gandhi's um, uh, farm retreat center. His, his, uh, he had he started four of them all together. I think this was one in Gujarat. Uh, this calf had been uh, seriously wounded. One of its legs. Um, was severely damaged, and it was clear that uh, the leg could not be repaired. Uh, it would not be possible to heal. And so Gandhi ordered uh, the calf to be shot. And he was, he was criticized for that. But he defended himself. He said, no, in this context, this was nonviolence. Because this animal would have 
was already suffering so much and would simply be suffering so much more. So he considered it to be uh, nonviolent to, um, as, as it said, sort of euphemistically, to put uh, the animal down. Um, yeah, those are a few thoughts. I don't know if that gets to what you're concerned about. Uh, yes, Maharaj, it does. Thank you so much for sharing so deeply. Um, <laughs> I look forward to your upcoming workshops on the subject matter. Oh, am I doing a workshop on this subject? <laughs> I'm hope I'm hoping so. Um, can I can I just add one little piece? I, I don't want to keep you any longer, but um, ahimsa. It seems to me ahimsa, and you know uh, the 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 phrase um, para dukkha dukhi go together. How can we, uh -huh. as um, aspiring Vaishnavas, watch the suffering of others? Um, right. So I I I I truly. Um, the, there's a core to the Sanskrit sound of it that is deeply compassionate. And thank you so much, Maharaj. Yeah, nice. Thank you for bringing that up. Paradukka uh, is it's a it's a name. It's it's a term you can say for a devotee, um, one who suffers the suffering of others. So it's describing empathy. And uh, of course, as you say, that links very nicely to the, and we could say that's the foundation of ahimsa for the devotee, recognizing the suffering of others, feeling that suffering. Naturally, the devotee, as Prabhupada says, it's common sense. Naturally, the devotee will uh, want to minimize or eliminate um, and just uh, a little blurb here. Uh, I'm re it comes to my mind. You, you all might be interested if you're not aware of it. Um, there's a very nice um, seminar presented by Radhika Raman Prabhu recently uh, at the um, San Jose Temple. What do they call it? Uh, the uh, anyway, the temple. The, yeah, their temple. Um, he gave a seminar on engaged Vaishnavism. Uh, that's not exactly the, t I think that's in the subtitle, but um, yeah, I don't have right with me the title, but uh, it, it was a recent seminar, three-part seminar, I believe. Um, and uh, so he, in a very nice analytical way, shows how um, Vaishnavas uh, are engaged in the world. It's not that Vaishnavas reject the world and simply act indifferent to the suffering of the world. Hare Krishna, thank you, Maharaj. That's one devotee I really love to listen to, Brother Raman Prabhu. Uh, very educated and uh, very humble devotee. Uh, Shemavara Prabhu, please give me a mute. Okay, Dandava Pranam Maharaj. 
Let's ask them all blessings. All glories to Shri Prabhupada. All glories to the assembled devotees. Uh, I'm driving, so please tolerate my <laughs> sound at the background. <clears throat> um, yeah, Maharaj, you just explained or cited, you just cited the uh, Gandhi uh, killing the calf that was suffering. And then yeah. the explanation again. <clears throat> so, I mean, this explanation uh, is actually a polemic uh, that is known as euthanasia, mercy killing. Right. So, yeah. uh, would we accept uh, Gandhi's uh, explanation as uh, uh, a standard for the Vaishnavas? Or, I mean, in one sense, do we support uh, mercy killing? Uh, do Vaishnavas uh -huh. support euthanasia? That's an interesting question. I was, um, I've been asked that recently also. Um, and I cannot say that I have a, uh, a conclusive, uh, a conclusion on that. I think it's, I think the jury is out. And I think, I think like many principles in Vaishnav ethics, it's a matter of desha kalapatra. Uh, it's, we, we tend to want uh, sort of, uh, how to say, we tend to, to want rules which apply in all circumstances. That's kind of a Western, uh, it's kind of a Western thing actually. Uh, Kantian, um, Kantian ethics and so on. Well, I guess you can say it goes back to Aristotle. Um, but my sense is it's it's very much time and circumstances. And with regard to animals, um, I was speaking with one devotee who cares for cows in one of the Iskan Goshalas. Um, I won't say where. <laughs> And he said, uh, I think it was kind of his private uh, experience or his feeling from his experience with cows. He said he felt that when a cow, um, due to its due to old age or sickness, uh, if when it comes to the point that the cow will no longer eat or drink. He feels that is a time when it would be justified uh, to uh, to do euthanasia. I don't know. That's that's one way of understanding. Some would say no. It uh, the 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 person the animal has to. Um, um, play out their entire karma, whatever it is. So, yeah. So I have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> uh, Krishna, uh, a follow up, a follow up. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, Maharaj, because uh, you have given an inconclusive uh, answer, so I would <laughs> like to give a uh, uh, an argument against uh, euthanasia okay. which uh, can be very convincing mm. on the Vaishnava Siddhanta. 
Well, according okay. to our Siddhanta, uh, each, each uh, entity, uh, living being, has uh, a prescribed time to use in their in a, in a body. <clears throat> and our argument for not killing them is uh, that we are depriving them from uh, fulfilling that time span, and then they have to come back again to complete it. So uh, the same argument is using is used against uh, euthanasia that the time if the time allotted to that soul to stay in that body has not yet expired, and you, in the name of mercy, uh, put an end to that body, yeah. uh, then uh, then uh, it is uh, you you've acted against the law of karma. So how do you see yeah, that? No, that's. Um... That's kind of what I was suggesting, uh, essentially. No, I think it's a, it's a, it's certainly a, a valid point and has to be considered seriously. But um, yeah, I don't want to commit myself one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Marag, I think your stance is. Well appreciated, but I have I have a counter opinion because actually I was going to ask this same question about euthanasia based on um, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's uh, stance on that wounded uh, calf. Yeah, one is well, we are human beings, and each and every one is allotted a specific time to live in a particular body. But because we are devotees, and uh, Mother Mitravinda talked about uh, uh, Paraduka Duki, that mm -hmm. is the basis of a devotee. That is the 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 the, the, the being. What makes a devotee is that he just cannot stand seeing another entity suffering. And so by the power of devotional service, we have great uh, devotees who perform animal sacrifices. And when they perform animal sacrifices, they're killing the animals. They end in the animals' uh, life earlier than allotted to them by Lord Brahma. But what happens? They attain a higher bodies. And so my, my argument will be that, just like Maharaj, you earlier on said, it depends on the time and the circumstance. If the devotee seeing this uh, animal suffering to a point that from humanly calculation, there is no possibility of this animal surviving, and you you just looking on how this animal is suffering, then that mercy killing may be okay. This is just my argument because one, <laughs> it's just like especially in the U.S. Here we have these uh, politicians who are debating over abortion. That this some some uh, wing says that under no circumstance should a woman have abortion, and the other wing says that yes, we also do not want abortion, but due to circumstances, 
abortion mm-hmm. may be allowed. So if we like go by what uh, my dear brother was saying, uh, his grace, Varaha uh, Prabhu was saying, then under no circumstance should abortion be ever uh, allowed to take place. But sometimes it is a necessity that the mother gets abortion because if she doesn't, she is going to lose her life. The fetus is going to lose its life. So do you, would you prefer to save one life and lose one or try to save one and lose both? So yeah. <laughs> that is, uh, that, w- that would be a very nice debate I would like to participate in. You're stirring up all the, you're stirring up all the coals of the fire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. I see, uh, Governor Prabhu, you have something to share. <laughs> Hare Krishna Maharaj. Please accept my humble obeisances. All glories to you. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Maharaj, thank you very much for your explanation to this uh, Ahimsa. You've given us a very broad explanation because uh, normally when you say Ahimsa, uh, most of us prefer that to be the killing of the animals. Mm-hmm. But you better understand clearly that uh, ahimsa, we can also be himsa to, I mean, ahimsa to our own. What yeah, uh, he touched what he was not supposed to touch. <laughs> <laughs> so he kicked himself out, but he'll come back. He'll, he'll come back, definitely. Yes. Uh, Srimad Maharaj Prabhu, do you still have your hand up? Or... Yeah. Okay, Govinda yeah. Prabhu is back. Uh, yeah, we can hear you. Can you hear us? Apparently not. Yes. Uh, yes. Hare Krishna. Okay. Yeah. Hare Krishna. Yes. Hare Krishna. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah. So, uh, you see, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking that we've already caused harm to ourselves, and that is a very great uh, ahimsa to our soul for identifying ourselves with the body and therefore doing all kinds of things that satisfy the body and keep the soul imprisonment. And that's a great ahimsa that we cause to ourselves. And so that anything that uh, will oppose our advancement to our Krishna consciousness or the development of consciousness of Krishna that can be ahimsa. So I I have this clear understanding from your uh, from your presentation today, Maharaj. Thank you very much. And concerning this argument, I would also say that um, uh, when we when we think of the evolution that the soul 
goes through, especially when one descends to an animal uh, form, it has to go through so many, many lifetimes, so many, many bodies before finally uh, it becomes a human being and maybe get a chance to participate again in Krishna consciousness. And so um, if a sacrifice is performed, for these animals to have a human form or to have a higher form of life, can that be considered ahimsa? For instance, like, like you're saying, the animal is sick and we all know that it cannot survive. So instead of looking at this animal to die naturally, uh, we have compassion for this animal to take its life. And if that is ahimsa, then compare that to leaving this animal to have its natural death and go through millions of lifetimes, millions of bodies before finally coming to a human platform. Which one is ahimsa? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, you both of both of you have brought up the subject of uh, ritual sacrifice. And I think, in, in a way, this that whole area is kind of a moot question because we understand that there are anyway no qualified priests in the present age to do such sacrifices, and therefore they're forbidden. Um, one could discuss about it in another age, another yuga, I suppose. Um, but also historically speaking because I've read a bit on the history of the term ahimsa as, um, as it's been uh, studied by some Indologists and they say this, this word ahimsa came up um, out of the practice of sacrifice when it was determined that maybe we shouldn't be physically killing animals. Um, maybe we should be uh, making some substitute for the animal. We need to do the ritual. Uh, there's this idea uh, in Vedic ritual that it's absolute, it must be done. But how do we do it? Uh, there's equally a tradition of substitution, all kinds of substitution. And so, uh, as I remember reading, this was where the idea of ahimsa came in. The sacrifice must go on, uh, but can we do it without killing animals? Anyway. Thank you very much, Maharaj. Um, so, Sadiq Prabhu kind of uh, tried to counteract by bringing him the question of uh, or the subject of abortion. <clears throat> yeah. Mm, but there are two different subjects. Abortion is nullifying the result of your own action. You, you invite the child to your sexual intercourse. Or even if it is a rape, you want to nullify the result of an action. So is that justified? That's the question. That's the big question about abortion. 
Can you deliberately nullify the concomitant result of your action? No, 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 I'm not, I'm not arguing. I'm just putting okay. my point across. And then the second one, which is uh, the, the mercy killing, uh, euthanasia, uh, is uh, what you call a mercy, your own, we, we may say mercy. There is that story of misplaced compassion. The child who wanted to help the butterfly come out of the cocoon seeing the, 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 the uh, what is it called, caterpillar struggling, and then he put a knife across the cocoon to get it out. And then the butterfly dropped and he couldn't fly and died. Now the struggle, yeah. just like the Buddhist philosophy, the suffering, the, the suffering and the struggle is meant for, it, it has a goal, a purpose to be achieved through that suffering. So if the, if the uh, caterpillar had, allowed, had been allowed to go through the natural process of squeezing itself throughout the cocoon, then the, the, the fluid in its stomach will, will descend. And then it will not come out with a bloated uh, uh, stomach because when the child cuts through the cocoon, uh, the, the, the flattening of the stomach was you know, prevented. And then what, he was trying to do like a compassion in being compassionate ended up to being a misplaced compassion so uh arguing uh trying to do uh, to do violence or killing which is not in any way given to us we have no right over life and death <clears throat> we are not uh, like the like somewhere Prabhupada said those who are uh, given the right uh, over natural uh, matters like the sun the moon i mean those who have control over natural forces, we do, we do not. And we cannot uh, take that into our hand to decide the death of somebody else. So that is my point. There's a difference between wanting to nullify the result of an action and wanting to show compassion, which may be a misplaced compassion because you do not see the whole result of what is happening. Thank you, Marat, for giving me the opportunity to say that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Okay. So well, I'm sorry uh, if I may say something in regards to my big brother's comment, because I think if we look at it or if we consider it from the viewpoint of what Shimabaraha Prabhu is saying, then yes, it will be it will be wrong if someone uh, is pregnant based on her own decision of becoming pregnant and then later on she decides to abort, then that, that, is, that is very wrong. But just like uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, did, this calf was suffering to a point that from humanly calculation, there was no way this calf is going to get better and live. It's just going to suffer, 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 and eventually die. And so when, when a woman becomes pregnant and congenitally has a problem, that is going to kill the fetus. And when the fetus dies, the woman is also going to die. This has been uh, uh, considered by expert medical experts. And if they come up with a conclusion that 
if the fetus is aborted, then the mother's health is going to be intact. So that is not the same as someone just becoming pregnant out of lust and wanting to abort the fetus. That is a different story, but it's a medical condition which is putting both the fetus and the mother at risk. And experts are saying that if the fetus is aborted, which has maybe less than 1% chance of surviving, that might that would save the mother's life. That, that, that is what I'm talking about. So that, I believe, falls in line with euthanasia in the sense that you just do not want to see this animal or this person go through so much pain and no chance. We say no chance because even though we are not the Supreme Lord, but from our calculation, we can say that this is this, that is this. So that is where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get this completely resolved on this meeting. <laughs> but it's nice. Of course, we, we, we are, discuss everything. Yeah, um, maybe, maybe that is something we, we, can, we can have maybe an yeah. in-service or some sort of... Uh, also written, I've also written one article um, many years ago on abortion. Um, which I wrote for a course that I was attending at university. Okay. And uh, I got an A-plus on it. I was happy to Hello! <laughs> All right, you would like to read that also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I remember one time I, I wrote an essay on abortion and I had, I had an F <laughs> because... Uh -oh. Yes, the, the instructor, the instructor specifically warned all the students never to write abortion. That is too is too complicated. So, but I didn't I didn't hear the instructor say that. So I wrote on abortion, and whether my argument was good or not, she didn't even consider it at all. She gave me F right away. <laughs> oh. yeah. So if we may go to. Uh, Maybe we can keep it short because. Okay, um, okay, okay, thank yeah. you, my friend. Hare Krishna, my right. Um, I accept my obeisance. All glory to you, all glory to all for And all glory to the assembled devotees. Um, Maharaja, I want a little bit of clarification because uh, this, like this topic we are talking about now. My my argument is that when we say someone karma, like a lot of devotees, they will meet someone in town, and the person is a beggar, asking for something to get something to eat, and some devotees conclude that oh it is his karma, so they will just pass by the person and go away. So my my uh, so my understanding is that if somebody has a karma. It is also, I understand that it is also part of his karma to come in contact with you when you meet the person. So, do, do we, don't we have to deliberate or think and ask ourselves, 
what is the part that we have to play in his or her karma yes. at that material moment. So if we refuse to play the part that we are supposed to play in the karma of the person, aren't we uh, incurring, uh, uh, I mean, like incurring sinful activity or something by refusing to perform our part of the person's karma? Yeah. So this issue we are talking about, if an animal is in a, in a difficult situation and it's suffering, we know that it's the karma of the animal that uh, is going through that. But we being materially present at that moment, doesn't it also show that we have to play some part in the karma of that animal at, mat at that material time? Yeah. And if so, if so, don't we have the right to make a compassionate decision? Mm -hmm. on behalf of such an entity. So this is the, my question. Thank you. Um, this is something that uh, I mentioned before Radhikaraman Prabhu's seminar, and this is a, a point which he makes uh, near the end of his seminar. Um, he, he brings this very close to what you're saying. He brings this in about karma. So, yeah, I'm kind of watching the clock, so I don't want to go on and on with this, but um, uh, your point of being related with another person's karma is, is well taken. In the Roman Catholic Christian tradition, they have the notion of sins of commission and sins of omission mm -hmm. that you can by doing something uh, we would use the word karma uh, you you get some karma or by not doing something you may get karma <laughs> so yeah that, so that, brings, that brings in uh, the the point of responsibility yeah which I, I, I understand responsibility to be responsibility, the ability to respond. Mm -hmm. uh, how, do we, how do we respond? This, I think, is very much a matter of uh, time, place, circumstance, and guidance, sadhu shastra guru vakya. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Maharaj. Uh, uh, the... The class, the class was originally sweet because the Srimad Bhagavatam now it's become sweeter and sweeter. You know, <laughs> <laughs> when you're eating something sweet, you just don't let want let go of it. But we have to because Maharaj yeah. has to move on. So Maharaj, we we are very much thankful and grateful that you were able to be here with us and give us your love your blessings and uh, wisdom. And I thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much, Maharaj. It was so beautiful meeting you in person in Gita Nagri also. So, yeah, for me, that was a real treat to be there. Yeah. Uh, when you there, Radha Damodar Ki Jai. Jai. <laughs> there were <laughs> questions that you tried to make it annually. So we'll see. Well, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> Yes, okay. So, dear devotees, we're going to humbly request you all to kindly unmute and we all chant uh, the sweetest Hare Krishna 
Mahamantra to express our appreciation to our revered speaker, his great, sorry, his holiness, Krishna Chitra Swami Maharaj. Please. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 Hare Hare, 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 H